You're listening to Sustainability Inc., a new limited series podcast from Boston Consulting Group, produced by Fortune Brand Studio. The views and opinions expressed by podcast speakers and guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fortune. Hello, I'm Gaia Vince, host of Sustainability Inc. Throughout the 12 episodes in our series, we'll be delving into the innovative, inspiring missions of top companies around the globe, talking to the business leaders at the front lines of achieving real climate impact. With the stakes higher than ever and the opportunity to make a difference greater than ever, these are the stories to inspire us all to join the urgent fight for true sustainability. A hundred years ago, Marie Curie famously said, you cannot help to build a better world without improving the individuals. And as we undergo the enormous transition to sustainability this century, her statement could not be more true. We need to improve sustainability to make a livable planet, but we can only build an environment that's healthy for nature if we also look after the needs of people. Here with me to talk about how companies can achieve the social side of sustainability is Wendy Woods, senior partner at Boston Consulting Group. So we're talking today about something which is absolutely intrinsic in society, in the way that we live our lives, and that is livelihoods. It's a really big subject that we can find hard to pin down exactly. So tell me, what does it mean to you, that word livelihoods? I like to think of it really aspirationally and much more broadly, which is a dignified way of providing for and taking care of ourselves, our families, and contributing in our communities and our world. It's really about having something that feeds us. So tell me, what are some of the biggest challenges when it comes to livelihoods? So the biggest challenges on livelihoods depends on where you are in the world, what sector you're operating in, what industry you're operating in. One of the challenges that I do want to make sure we talk about today is what I'll call a skill challenge. And many businesses are finding the need with the pace of change that is happening in the world and the pace of innovation and disruption and new opportunities within their business, there is a real challenge at times to find the workers with the skills they need. I think it's hard to have a conversation about livelihoods and not acknowledge the food system transformation and the agricultural system transformation that is happening in the world right now. Tell me about it. By some accounts, food and agricultural systems in the world employ between a quarter and a third of the working population in the world. Tremendous number of employees, many of them are subsistence level farmers. And with what we're seeing in the transformations that are happening in the world right now, as it relates to climate, as it relates to the potential, we're seeing some real opportunities to improve the quality of the livelihoods within that food system, agricultural system in the world. Now we talk about subsistence farmers, but farmers are actually starting to look at practices that we call regenerative agriculture. That means not just how we sustain the quality of the soils, but how we actually make the quality of the soil better than they are now. And you can do that by bringing more carbon into the soil. When you do that, the soil becomes richer, less depleted. Yields go up for farmers. 
Yields go up can mean better livelihoods. At the same time, we have an issue of scarcity and a growing scarcity of the types of carbon sequestration opportunities that are needed in the world and that people are paying for in the world. And so we see businesses arising right now and NGOs arising right now where farmers are actually getting paid to pursue regenerative agricultural practices. Restoring the health of soils through regenerative methods is a huge part of building sustainable agricultural systems. But the well-being of the people who work those soils is just as important. Driscoll's berries can be found in most grocery stores in the US. And Soren Bjorn, president of Driscoll's of the Americas, is here to discuss this holistic sustainability. Now, when we talk about climate change, when we talk about sustainability and this huge transition that we're making to a different way of doing things systemically, we are also talking about livelihoods that's interwoven into this new transition that companies and we're all going through. Tell me, why is this important for Driscoll's? The way we think about our business is that we are ultimately dependent upon many, many small communities all over the world to do the farming of our berries. And I think when you think about climate change, you can think about it in a global way, and then you can think about it all the way down at the community level. And when you farm highly perishable crops like berries, the impact is really felt at the local community level. You could just look after the bottom line and make sure that you get as much bang for your buck, as many berries for your buck as possible. Why do you care about livelihoods? Well, sustainability is ultimately about something that's multi-generational. It allows us to do what we do in this generation, also in the next generation. And our company is a multi-generational company already. We are on the fourth generation. We are slowly moving on to the fifth generation. And I know the fifth generation is committed to that the sixth generation also gets the opportunity. And so, you know, by far the easiest for business like ours is to continue to farm and operate in the communities we always have, as opposed to just leave those communities and move somewhere else where now the climate has adjusted and is more appropriate. So it's ultimately about that, making the business sustainable for multiple generations. So sort of socially sustainable and economically sustainable, as well as environmentally sustainable. Now, some of the pressures that we are facing as we head into the decades ahead, as we head into this climate crisis, are particularly going to affect agricultural production. And fruits, berries are really one of the most affected crops. And that itself has an impact on livelihoods. Tell me about that. So these crops that are highly sensitive to the environment and not easily adjustable, they're going to be highly impacted if, as we see changes in ocean temperatures, the amount of fog we have on the coast of California, which helps cool down the berries, which is really what we want. The impact that would be tremendous if we don't get on top of this. We are fortunate that we are a science-based company to begin with. Our origin is to breed better strawberries or better berries. And so we are incorporating the potential impacts into our breeding objectives to say, okay, let's make sure we have berries that can withstand some of the pressures we are likely to get on. How difficult is it to communicate this sustainable vision to individual farms and to the farmers that work and run on them? Well, I mean, change is always challenging, I think. And the challenge I would say is, particularly in our industry, in the berry industry, is that a lot of our farmers are not the landowners. The landowners maybe got the land several generations ago, and they have since left and sitting somewhere clipping a coupon on the rent. And to get the landowner and the farmer 
Andruskos to partner in making the changes on the land itself that's necessary is really, really challenging in our industry. It's a little easier for a corn farmer in Nebraska that may have owned that land for a long time to get into regenerative agriculture. In berry productions where maybe we are rotating with a lettuce crop or a broccoli crop with a completely different farmer and that landowner isn't even interested in agriculture, only interested in the rent, getting that collaboration is very, very difficult. I actually don't think it will happen unless you have NGOs that can bring people together, investment funds that can bring people together, government that can bring people together, either through regulation or incentives. I know that you have fair trade certification, which helps with this. Tell me a bit about what that involves. We began to realize that we were looking at the impact we were having as a business in a quite a narrow circle. We have a lot of well-paying jobs. For example, in Mexico, where the fair trade program is deployed, the average pay of the harvesters in, in the Duskos enterprise is significantly higher than what is generally the wages in Mexico. But we began to realize that our impact was actually much, much broader. We have literally, within our enterprise between us and our growers, created quite nice farm worker housing units that has running water, it has a health clinic inside, it has great cafeterias, it has opportunity for continuing education, and on and on and on. And those are things that just didn't exist in the community. And so actually our problem sometimes today is that the workers we bring in that live in a farm worker housing actually have better conditions, are better taken care of than some of the people that were local. So now we're sort of having to turn around and say, okay, well, how can we help the local community catch up? So you're a berry company, but you're also invested in people. Why did you start caring? Well, it's a very labor-intensive business. I think this year in the business I'm responsible for, there will probably be somewhere between 75 and 100,000 individuals that pick Driscoll's berries in between US and Mexico. That is a lot of people. And it's not obvious that they're just gonna keep coming back year after year after year. And so we have to do a good job of taking care of them. And they have to feel like they're part of an enterprise that cares about them and about the broader community. You know, we have a business that's so highly collaborative because you have these independent farmers that run their own business. You have Driscoll's that does the genetics and produces the plants and ultimately sells the fruit. And that makes it a people business. So are you developing genetically modified berries that can withstand the sorts of temperatures we're expecting, and perhaps that can withstand some of the many pests that feed on berries so that you don't need to use as many pesticides. Yeah, I think that could be a shortcut to take. Consumers all around the world have spoken loudly and clearly that they are not ready for genetically modified berries or gene-edited berries. And so our commitment is to do it through natural breeding processes. And that's what we do. There are no genetically modified Druskos berries in the marketplace, and there are no plans to put them out there. One of the things as we sort of moving on to the next level of climate change impact on our business is what we are really doing is taking the approach of really having the science drive what is the priority. Science here is so critical and it's frustrating that in the world today, that science is being challenged to the degree it's being challenged. We really think that's the key asset here that helps us prioritize and really drive where we can make the greatest impact. And so that's what we are committed to at Driscoll's. Ensuring fair labor and trade practices is not just a priority for the food industry. The garment industry is also starting to address the challenge. And there have been calls for regulations to play a bigger role in speeding this transition to protect employees throughout the supply chains. Right, Wendy? 
There's absolutely a role for regulation. We need to find a middle ground. We need regulations that protect the safety of workers, that provide decent working conditions, that provide that dignity, that provide decent wages so that people can actually feed themselves and their families. There are also labels, aren't there, that can help consumers to avoid companies that are exploiting their workers and to reward those companies that really are paying a living wage. There are labels and better verification. We hear labels like fair trade thrown around, ethically sourced. Some mean more than others. As consumers become more savvy about what they're purchasing, being able to demonstrate that products are being sourced sustainably, that the workers are being treated fairly, is becoming very important. I'm actually on the board of an organization called OpenSC that BCG and WWF founded, which provides supply chain transparency and certifies and traces and verifies through the blockchain, being able to certify all the way through the value chain that you are pairing fair wages to the farmer who actually supplied the commodity is something that actually creates value for a number of companies. The transparency in the systems that we're getting today makes a lot of this much more possible. This transparency is key for Patagonia, a brand with an established reputation for sustainable practices. From the beginning, the company has prioritized the livelihoods of its workers, both within the business and its supply chains. Avi Garbo, Patagonia's environmental advocate, and Wendy Savage, its Director of Social Responsibility, Traceability and Animal Welfare, discuss why this matters. Now, Patagonia is a well-known clothing company, but it's slightly unusual compared to many companies in that sustainability really has been right at the heart of the company since its inception. Can you talk me through some of the decisions that were made at that point? It is quite extraordinary. Wendy? Well, I've been with Patagonia for 10 years. And even before coming to the company, one of the things that strike me the most is that the company has stayed very firm in their position of advocating for the environment and for people for many, many years. There's something that Yvonne Chouinard says that it's leading an examined life. And all throughout the company history, that's what we've done. And so from changing our cotton from conventional to organic back in the 90s when nobody was doing that, that was a major switch. But it was because we realized that conventional cotton was not good for the environment, not good for people. And so it was a big decision that the company took. I mean, that's really interesting, isn't it? Leading an examined life. How has this transition in the public consciousness and the political consciousness changed and how is it changing Patagonia, Arvi? What we try to do is be as responsible a company as we can. And that really means examining everything from our inputs, the way we grow our food, the way we grow the textiles or procure the textiles that end up in our apparel through, as Wendy works with, of course, the importance of social welfare and worker protections, but all the way through the full life cycle of our products, culminating, frankly, we've got a growing Warnwear program, of course, where we sell our used gear because we all know that the best jacket for the environment is the one that you've already bought. That is to say, our mission is not merely reacting to public perception, it's really staying true and adhering to what I'll call the founding values or founding principles of the company. 
All that being said, there's no question that you see, I think, more and more businesses certainly talking about being more sustainable and more responsible. And I think it's very important for a company like ours to make sure that we encourage that sort of activity. I think we're all of us kind of mindful of the typical greenwashing, and we want to make sure that actions follow words. So let's talk a little bit about the people who make the products. How important is it that the livelihoods behind Patagonia are also sustainable? Very, very important. We're in business to save our home planet and communities and people are part of our home planet. So we look at both the environmental impacts and the impacts on people equally. And then this is a change I think that we've seen through many years when companies looked at social responsibility and environmental responsibility as a separate thing. And little by little, everything is coalescing. It's just one, it's one home planet. So we have a big goal of achieving living wages by 2025 for all our apparel factories. And so as we figure out how are we going to achieve those goals in the supply chain, because it's very difficult, supply chains are very vast and we don't own our factories. We identified fair trade as one of our first steps towards living wages, because it was a program that truly helped us get funds directly to the workers that make our products. Since 2014, where we launched our first eight styles, now we're up to almost 87% of our styles that are fair trade certified. And that has meant over $16 million that have gone directly to the people making our products. Now that is an issue, isn't it? With these complicated supply chains involving quite often multiple countries and countries where standards and regulations are much lower than we might expect in the West. It's very difficult to get that verified and to make sure that when your factory tells you that the people are being paid a living wage, they actually are. How does a company based in the United States check that a garment made in Bangladesh is not harming a worker? It's a lot of work, but for us, everything starts with the relationships that we have with our suppliers. First of all, we're not a fashion brand. We don't consider ourselves a fashion brand. And the relationships that we foster with our suppliers are long lasting. So we wouldn't go in a factory for one style and then leave. And so it allows us to create these relationships where if a supplier is having issues with any of their systems in place or any issues with workers, we work with them, we invest in the supplier and we help them come up to our standards. We are founding members of the Fair Labor Association for many, many years. So all of our programs have that solid base of being responsible to our suppliers and responsible sourcing and add fair trade on top of that, which is another layer of assurance for us. Supply chains are not perfect by any means, and we are not a perfect brand, but we do strive to have that transparency and work directly with our suppliers to ensure that the workers are being protected and being treated fairly. Now, you talked earlier about livelihoods and the social responsibility not being separate from environmental responsibility. What does that actually mean in terms of how Patagonia allocates funds and allocates resources to those areas? We are very attuned to our own impacts, obviously kind of in our backyard. 
but also, I think, cognizant of the fact that are owned and operated. That is to say, where we interface with the customers, certainly in the United States and internationally, those spaces are, for all intensive purposes, near carbon neutral, at least in the sense of the renewable energy that we use to power our facilities, the solar panels on our buildings, et cetera. And so when it comes, for example, to climate change and greenhouse gas emissions, the overwhelming majority of our emissions emanate from our supply chain. They're what are referred to as scope three. So just as Wendy described working closely with those manufacturers and those suppliers on the social and worker protection standards, we try to do the same with respect to the environmental output and impacts they have on the waste impacts, the wastewater, the water usage, the greenhouse gas emissions, the energy efficiency. So for us, I think it's an ongoing process working with our own supply chain experts, working with Wendy and her team to really figure out the best way to begin to convert and to move these suppliers into lower carbon sources of energy and constantly trying to diminish the per unit impact of the materials and the clothes that we make there. Are you finding over recent years that more brands want to join you and they do want to partner? Are you sensing a momentum to this whole process that you embarked on? Yes, definitely, whether it is because there's more legislation around it or because consumers are asking about where are my products made? How are my products impacting the environment? Who's behind my label? There's just a lot of education that is being happening, and that's our goal. When we come out with these campaigns of buy less, demand more, demand more recycle, demand less impacts, demand better working conditions. How do you go right back to that supply chain and look beyond the factory, look at the dyes that you use and the materials from where they're grown? We have a whole team of people whose sole mission is to innovate on the apparel side and to make sure that, again, we're diminishing our use of chemicals, we're diminishing our use of dyes and the like without sacrificing, hopefully, the performance. I would add as well that whenever we have standards, we have standards for obviously human rights, but also we have very strong standards for environmental responsibility and impacts. What would you say to a company that's wondering whether it's worth really looking into livelihoods in this very complicated way? I would say if there's a place to start, start with your own house, of course. But when it comes to the supply chain, you cannot longer say that is not my responsibility. I will wash my hands because these are the people that are making your products possible. So start small, start with one factory, start with one style or one product. There's just so many solutions out there there's no excuse in this day and age. And your customers will not forgive you and there's legislation will not forgive you and it's just time. And is it possible to make a profit as a company while also taking care of the planet and taking care of the society that your company is embedded in? It's not only possible, it's been proven time and time again. And oftentimes, whether it's in the business context or in the governmental regulation context, you hear this canard or this lie that you have to make these choices between economic profitability and environmental standards. And our history, I think both as a company, but also by the way, our history as a country really shows that you can increase economic standards at the same time while you're tightening and improving environmental standards. They do go hand in hand and environmental protection provides economic opportunity. 
And I think a company like Patagonia, as responsible as it strives to be, has tried to show this. And I think other companies are seeing the light of day on this as well. The revolution we're all going through to decarbonize our energy systems will impact livelihoods in the short term. Good planning and policy can help smooth this transition, but it is complex, as I discuss with BCG's Wendy Woods. The International Energy Agency released its report charting a path to net zero by 2050. The IEA called for a reduction by 75% in fossil fuel use, which at the moment, 80% of our energy comes from fossil fuels. Actually, I think it's slightly more than that. This is a huge, huge energy transition that we're going to be undertaking in the next few decades. Now, the IEA say in the report that although jobs will be lost in the fossil fuel industry, the jobs that can be gained in the renewables sector more than make up for that. The only problem is, of course, that the skill set is different, the places where people work are different. I mean, if you're an expert in an oil rig, you're not necessarily going to be great working in a solar farm. How do we reconcile that huge transition? So it's a really important question, Gaia, and just want to support that we have more jobs being created in wind, solar, and renewables by far, by orders of magnitude, than we have being lost in industries like coal. They are not all in the same place. That is true. The geographies don't overlap one-to-one, -one, but many of them are in the same place. And many of them are actually much more flexible. When we think about coal, coal deposits are in very targeted geographies. But when we think about solar installation, solar installation happens ubiquitously and broadly geographically. And so I think the opportunities around renewables are much broader than we think. The skill sets don't align one-to-one -one either, but that's where we talk about on-the-job training and a lot of the things many of these jobs can actually be trained for. And many of the jobs, there is overlap in the skill set that is needed in a way that makes the transition very feasible in some places. And so we do need public sector engagement we understand that it's not gonna work for every single worker and we need to understand the safety nets that are gonna help with that. But there's a lot of overlap. Looking ahead here, Wendy, what would you say to a company who wants to make sure that their supply chain is ethical with a living wage for the people who work for them? Is it worth doing? It is absolutely worth doing. And in fact, I would say that as those demands that we see from consumers and investors and governments ratchet up, it will be not just a worth doing, it will be a requirement to do, and it will be a requirement to succeed. The best advice I have is don't try to do it alone. What we are seeing in the best instances are partnerships across sectors, across industries of manufacturers and businesses working together with their suppliers to provide visibility and to demand the changes they need and the transparency they need to first understand what's going on in their supply chain and get the performance in the supply chain that they actually need. This is a social justice issue, isn't it? Because we in the rich world might demand very quick and luxurious commodities at a low price. People in the poor world are perhaps desperate for wages of any kind. There is a change in the air that consumers are demanding transparency over supply chains. They want to know that the things they're buying are not exploiting people. 
Do you have a sense of when this change occurred and where are you feeling it? Are you getting it from customers? Are you getting it from shareholders? Is it within the company itself? There's a tremendous change and the exciting part is that it's coming from everywhere. We're seeing it absolutely for consumers, certainly from the younger cohorts of consumers, but across the board. We're seeing individuals wanting to pay attention to know that the products, as you said, are not exploitative and good for the environment. We see it from investors who see the risks that are being created when products aren't sustainable, are contributing to climate change and all of the risks to the economy in those situations. We're seeing it from employees who, as we said, in the sense of livelihoods, want to work for companies that are creating a sense of purpose for them and doing good in the world. We know all the data that employees in a company that feel a sense of purpose are more than twice as productive as those who aren't. And so the pressures to actually create this sustainable, inclusive world at companies is what's really exciting and encouraging me to believe that we can get there. This has been something that has been in the air and coming about for a long time. I think what we're seeing is some of that transparency and the ability to see more deeply into supply chains, to share information much more quickly, means that it is that much easier for consumers and investors and governments to act on that information. A living wage is essential to sustaining our planet. This goes beyond simply creating jobs and demand and extends all the way to guaranteeing a sustainable livelihood for the people producing everything from wood to food to clothing. After all, the fate of humans and our long-term interests are intrinsically linked to the health of the planet. For true sustainability, we need to look after the well-being of people as well as nature. Sustainability Inc. is a Boston Consulting Group podcast produced by Fortune Brand Studio without the participation of the Fortune editorial staff. On our next episode, we'll be exploring the cutting-edge environmental and technological innovations in water storage, water usage, and the resulting environmental impacts with business leaders from major global companies. Thank you for listening to Sustainability Inc. Please subscribe, download, and leave comments and ratings wherever you listen.